China's long-delayed and much-anticipated census is coming out, and everyone's wondering when China's population will shrink. And they would come nonstop every night, just come to visit you in your apartment and to persuade her eventually to have abortion. And uh, that abortion sometimes occurred very late. So uh, there were a lot of tragedies um, of late-term abortion. We're talking about third trimester, even. Did you know that China's one-child policy, that pervasive and intrusive policy that was unprecedented in human history, a policy that led to forced abortions and sterilizations of millions, was in fact never the law of the land in China because, amazingly, it was never written into law. Hey there, news peelers. Today is May 7, 2021, and this is Adele, host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this Peel in the History Behind News, the histories of many countries we read, watch, and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories. And of course, several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Last week, China's National Bureau of Statistics released a statement about its much-anticipated and long-delayed decennial census. According to the Wall Street Journal, the statement was merely a sentence long, claiming that China's population grew in the year 2020. Some publications, such as the London-based Financial Times, believe that this census will reveal that China's population has in fact shrunk. But China disagrees, countering that population decline, if any, is more a matter of a statistical blip than actual births and deaths. In its May 1st edition, The Economist delves deeper. In an article titled, Is China's Population Shrinking? It explains the reason for China's delay in releasing its census. Leaks suggest that the results have not been published because they're so shocking, and the party, that is the Communist Party, is in a flap about how to break the news. In a sobering article, the New York Times describes America's, our own country's, declining birth rate, which has led to a slower population growth, in fact the slowest since the 1930s, nine decades ago. And somehow the narrative of this article turns to China, because, as the New York Times tells it, Due to our slow population growth, U.S. now faces the most serious challenge to its supremacy since the Cold War. From China. So China's impending population decline looms large not only because it poses internal challenges for China, but also because it poses external, geopolitical challenges. To better understand the history of China's population surge and the draconian efforts to slow its growth, we spoke with Dr. Feng Wang a professor of sociology at the University of California, Irvine. He has research interests in contemporary Chinese society and comparative demographic processes and social inequality in state socialism. He has received many academic distinctions, and his works are frequently cited in prominent journals, including the following article, The Social and Sociological Consequences of China's One-Child Policy, which was published in the journal the Annual Review of Sociology. Dr. Wang has authored many books, including the following two. Convergence to Very Low Fertility in East China, Processes, Causes, and Implications. And also, One Quarter of Humanity, Malthusian Mythology in Chinese Realities, 1700-2000. Links to his books, publications, and academic homepage are also provided in the detailed caption of this podcast episode. So, Stay with me as Dr. Wang and I peel the history behind this news. 
This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. So, Professor Wang, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show today. I have followed your work and research for some time, including your contributions to the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and other prominent publications. So I'm very excited for our conversation now. Thank you for taking the time for it, sir. Uh, Adele, uh, it's uh, a pleasure to be in this program. I admire what you do. Uh, we do need um, a read and uh, reflect on the history we have uh, traveled. Um, so I'm glad to be here on this topic. Wonderful. We don't have enough of that, right? We don't have enough of the history behind news for people to learn how we got here. We are uh, the products of our histories. So, yeah. Yeah. So speaking of history, as you know, in the last two to three weeks, America's newspapers such as some of the ones that I mentioned, have been churning out articles about China's expected census, in fact, long expected census, which as I understand it, has not yet, yet been published in detailed form. And there are some issues here, such as data accuracy, questions about that, delays and discrepancies, alleged leaks by China's Census Bureau, which we won't get into in any of those, and words like shocking and startling are used. To be fair, America's decennial census also causes a lot of political controversy. But this is a point that I wanted to get to. What's interesting is that in all of these discussions and disagreements, they point to one thing, China's one-child policy in the past. So let's, let's start with that. Uh, what was China's one-child policy that continues to create controversy several years that after it's been officially abandoned? Well, we have to uh, take ourselves back to uh, the latter half of the last century in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, this is a time when the world was uh, living under the Matthewian scare. And uh, what, what you mean by that, if I may uh, if I may interrupt you, please, Malthusian is scared. What you're talking about is that population yeah. is going to grow, there's going to be a shortage of food, and there's going to be a population, catastrophic population decline. Is, is, is that a correct way of saying uh, that? It, it was the uh, population explosion. Yes. And um, I think um, there was this book by a Stanford biologist, Paul Enrich. Uh, which had a title called The Population Bomb. Oh, boy. That's uh, well, the, uh, the scare uh, had its reasons. That is, um, if it's just looking at the world population growth, uh, it doubled in nearly 40 years from uh, about 3 billion in uh, 1960 to uh, over 6 billion by 2000. So the world population was growing at a speed that the world had not seen before, not during the Matthewian times. Wow. And wow. China, China was the largest population in the world, had always been the largest population in the world. And uh, this unprecedented population explosive growth was driven by something that's spectacularly beautiful, which was the lengthening of human lifespan. So in the 20th century, the average lifespan of the whole world population doubled. That had never happened before. That's wonderful. Uh, the testament to 20th century medicine and I guess relative peace, right? Right. So, but with this drastic mortality decline, a lot of people uh, who would have died early on, survived. Children survived to become adults. So um, China under socialism... What you're referring to is less lower infant mortality, right? 
Exactly. Okay, uh, we're great. talking about infant mortality from 10, 20% to uh, 1% or half of a percent. Infant mortality used to be 10 to 20%. My goodness. Uh, wow. Well, when life expectancy was about 35 to 40 years, uh, only half of all birth would survive to adulthood. So you have 20%. Or 25% would die during the first year. Anyway, so for China, under the socialist system, with all its criticisms of the system, a great achievement was a drastic decline in mortality. So population growth in China was extraordinarily fast as well. So the speed at that time was uh, going to double the population size once every 35 years. Professor Wang, so I just want to couch this for myself and the, our listeners. Despite everything that was happening during Chairman Mao's uh, leadership, uh, including the Great Famine, mm -hmm. China actually went through a significant population spurt. That's what you're saying. Exactly. And then largely due to the public health and also a egalitarian food distribution policy under uh, the Maoist uh, socialist policies. So China in the late 1970s, wow, interesting. the time of Mao's death, um, saw its population growth uh, at a very fast rate and also had another challenge. That is, under the planned economy system, uh, China had a constant shortage of food, of jobs, of classrooms. So uh, for China, the challenge of publishing growth was especially daunting. So for the new leadership, they really need to put a break on what they saw was a runaway uh, population explosion. Okay. So um, when the Wenchao policy came uh, to the scene, uh, this was 1979, 1980, China... And, and by this time... Chairman Mao has been dead for three years, two or three years. Am I um, correct? For three years. And then the new leadership changed the legitimacy of the new leadership, no longer from, no longer on revolutions, class struggles, but on improving people's standard of living. And uh, so they made a very simple calculation. How do you do, uh, how to improve uh, standard of living is your economic output divided by the number of people you have. <laughs> this is math. This is very simple math. So people were just counted as numbers. And also they were worried about um, the large number of people born after the famine in the early 1960s. And they were coming of age in the 1980s and they would need jobs. Also, they would become parents themselves. So all those things put together, the global uh, cloud uh, of uh, population explosion, the Chinese rapid population growth during socialist time, and the new mandate of the post-Mao leadership. So add together, the leadership decided that they need to do something even more drastic. And so they were doing something that's... Uh, in a way, they were mortgaging the future. They were saying, okay, let's just push this, sacrifice one generation, let's achieve our goal. So how to do that? You restrict the number of children per couple to the smallest as possible. And that's one child per couple. Is it, it's a bit of an irony to, in, to improve the lot of their population to, to, to the living standards of people, they actually exercise a heavy hand, in a sense, to go about that. Uh, they, they leave Mao, and this is really a sort of an intrusive, restrictive policy, right? Um, well, it, it's, it's incredibly intrusive, and uh, it has never happened elsewhere, and uh, not in Chinese history. And especially in a society where family uh, has always been cherished as the core of the so as the basis of the social 
foundation. And the society, the culture, uh, is a culture that emphasized on family, on king, on family values, on respect for the elderly. So here is a extreme policy that would uh, cut the, the Chinese society from its very foot by uh, altering forcefully uh, the king networks, families, compositions of uh, of the uh, the Chinese families. So Wang, this really piqued my interest. Uh, the, this pervasive intrusive policy. So I took I took it upon myself. Uh, I, I went and researched China's constitution uh, to look for to look for for this policy uh, in China's constitution. There are many different articles. You're more familiar with it, obviously, than I am. And uh, I found references to family planning and what have you, sort of vague in general. But I didn't see anything about a one child policy. Um, am I? I mean, a policy of this enormity that, as you said, just goes down granularly to the very heart of the family value, I assume it would be in the Constitution. Am I missing amendments? Is this codified somewhere? How did this come about legislatively? Is it like the U.S. where uh, provinces need to ratify this? Uh, well, uh, you know, this is one of the uh, the most... Uh, unnoticed and also the most uh, ironic part of the history of the one child policy and which is the policy itself has never been written into any explicitly any Chinese uh, laws be it the constitution the marriage law or even the family planning uh, law itself <laughs> so well, we have to understand how the Chinese society was uh, uh, was run and also the politics of this. Uh, so the society was coming out of the Cultural Revolution. China was rebuilding its legal system. So the society was not, uh, run, uh, ruled by law. And, uh, it's by mass movement. It's by the orders from the, uh, the Communist Party. So, uh, that's one aspect. And so you don't have to have laws in order to do things in China then. Um, even now, uh, but much less than back 40 years ago. If I may interrupt you for just one moment. So 1979, this is the, the implementation begins. So let's say it's 1992. Is there writing anywhere about this? Do, do party leaders point to any text for this? Do you see as an American how this is so enigmatic and foreign to me? Well, yes and no. Okay. So uh, one aspect is uh, the importance or the unimportance of law. Uh, That's interesting. Importance in or unimportance. Of law. Uh, okay. In the land of China. Well, uh, the constitution early on also, um, I think even now I have not checked the latest constitution, uh, guarantees the freedom of speech, the freedom <laughs> of assembly. And, you know, it's, it's like copied from other constitutions. Yeah. Uh, you know, Chinese population, I think they removed this later on, but the constitution back in 1980 had guarantees for assembly, for freedom of uh, speech, for religious uh, belief. And we know, uh, you know, you get censored all the time these days. Anyway, so law is not that important. That's one aspect. The other part is politics. Um, while most of the leaders were, uh, in agreement in controlling population, uh, the extreme measure was not, um, supported by everyone, uh, at very high, um, uh, levels. So, um, the policy came out as a letter to call for party members and members of the communist youth leagues to make a sacrifice and to uh, have only one child. So it was not even a, that letter in September, 1980, published uh, in the People's Daily and in the public 
That was not a law. That was not even a requirement to the general population. So it almost sounds like a plea, like an entreaty, uh, it, make it a sacrifice. A it was a plea, and if you read the letter, it actually says, uh, "This is not a policy that's uh, consequence neutral. It has negative consequences, and they anticipated some of them, and uh, also said in thirty some years from now, from nineteen eighty, when China would be a different society, then we would have." Different policy, so it was framed as a one-generation policy, but because of the politics and the embarrassment, the hesitation that this is such extreme policy, so the the central government delegated every province to have regulations. So uh, when you say well, whether the one-child policy uh, was uh, a law, it was not a formal law, but it was. Regulations uh, formulated by every province in China, so it's a local regulation. And then uh, the policy over time also was uh, modified. They allowed more exam exemptions, and they allowed the rural couples to have two children if the first one is a boy. Is, so, that, is that because rural couples uh, needed, uh, I guess, boys for more intensive labor in the countryside? Is that it? Uh, well, 40 years ago, 80% of the Chinese population were uh, living in the countryside. Interesting. And yeah, they, yeah. Were, they relied on farming as livelihood. Okay. So imagine not only you have you need to have a, uh, a son, uh, who would be labor, and also if you only have a girl, uh, the Chinese custom was that the girl would marry off to go to live with uh, the groom's family, so you would end up childless. Meaning you lose that off offspring, yeah. Right. Interesting. So yeah, so uh, so that's how the one-child policy got started. Interesting. Um... Professor Wang, why don't we take a short break and then talk about the impact of one-child policy in China's people? We'll be back in a moment. So, Professor Wang, we talked about the 1980 letter in which... Uh, it called for sacrifice by party leaders. And, and I, I, I said, this sounds like a plea. And you said, yes, it really was. So pardon this question because it's going to come out naive because I'm asking this question as an American, as my life experience. So let's say it's 1985, whatever, during this one child policy. And we do have, my spouse and I do have a second child or a third child. Does the police show up? Is there punishment? How is this enforced? Is there a reward? Uh, there was a very uh, trivial uh, reward, but mostly uh, it, uh, the one-child policy was implemented as any other policies uh, in China at that time. Which is? Mass campaign and uh, combined with uh, strong punishment. First of all, mass campaign, you mean propaganda campaign, that sort of thing. Propaganda, mobilization, uh, study sessions, and people watching each other, reporting each other. Oh, jeez. Um, so you have, I mean, this is the traditional way of, of governance is through mass mobilization. Uh, in a way, it's almost like a mass terror. It's a collective society, right? And so people are doing this to, uh, help the nation to help everybody else. Okay. So, uh, but the punishment, uh, was not uniformly effective. So, uh, depending where you are, uh, 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 about in the 19, uh, in the 1980s. So if you were a, a lucky one, uh, under the socialist system, you were working in the cities. You will guarantee the jobs. 
and housing and food rationing, everything healthcare. When you say lucky one, does this apply to blue collar and white collar workers, or is this? Uh, okay. Or comparative compared to villages, is that what you mean, lucky one? It means that you're not living in the countryside. Okay, you got that. A state employee. Got so it. So if you're lucky one, uh, this is your unlucky moment. So the government could uh, kick you out from your job, uh, could uh, deny your promotion, and could fire you. So you could lose everything. So urban. So you've gotten lucky, and from your village through connections or through personal merit, you've gone, let's say, to Beijing, and you work for a prominent government institution, and they find out you or your wife had is, is pregnant for a second time. This this can have reprisals. That you, you could be fired. Uh, you you will be fired. People will fire. Oh wow! And uh, and then also even before you had the second child, uh, they would discover that your wife was pregnant, and they would come nonstop every night, just come to visit you in your apartment and to persuade her, eventually to have abortion. And uh, that abortion sometimes occurred very late, so uh, there were a lot of tragedies. Um, of late term. Abortion. We're talking about third trimester, even. Uh, they really need to make past sure six months. Yes, uh, they really need to make sure that the the child was not born. And but if you were the unlucky one under socialist arrangement, uh, you were mostly farming, uh, living on your own. The government could not do much, right? Uh, they could. Um, eventually, there were cases where actually they took away your uh, draft animal. Uh, they actually imprisoned uh, illegal means, just village cells. If they take uh, away their draft animals, that these, these people in the countryside may starve. Uh, yeah, and then some people's, uh, I mean, some local officials uh, destroyed uh, farmers' families' properties. And because they were so frustrated, because these local officials uh, were pressured to make sure that the out-of-plan birth did not happen, so it was it was uh, a, there was a lot of coercion and a lot of uh, brutality to implement such a policy. Professor Wang, you said you were talking about. Uh sort of supervisors and people that work in, uh, in government institutions. And you used the following phrase. You said they really needed to make sure that you don't have another child. Would the bosses, the supervisors within these government institutions get in trouble if their employees had multiple children? Is that is that sort of a high hierarchy? Is that how it came down? That's exactly what, how this, this was done. So... I see. Population was planned as trees or as uh, cement sticks. So they had quota and they had numbers for allowed for uh, every province, every city, every county, every township, and down to every village and every factory. And also they had the high, half million people were hired eventually oh, just boy. to do this job. Half a million people? Yes. The bureaucracy had half a million people. That's a powerful bureaucracy in and of itself. Uh, it was also a hierarchy, uh, irony because in the last, well, before the end of the policy in 2015, every other bureaucracy was getting smaller, but this bureaucracy was getting bigger. As, as, as the policy itself was waning, the bureaucracy continues on and strengthens. That is ironic. Um, and the bureaucracy also played a very uh, active and meaningful role in resisting the change of the policy. It became a vested interest itself. I, I think you just answered one of my upcoming questions, which is, if this was such a draconian, br brutal regime, if you will, I'm not talking about the China's government, I'm just talking about this specific regime of uh, uh, family planning. It took so long to get rid of it. 
partly because of the bureaucracy, a uh, well-entrenched bureaucracy. Is that it? Uh, it certainly uh, was one of the factors. Um, so when the policy was uh, announced uh, nationwide in 1980, uh, it said very explicitly in the letter, in about 30 years, the China would be a different country and the policy would be a different policy. So even that was anticipated. So uh, by the turn of the century, by year 2000, China was already a very different society. It was much richer. And the per capita income goal set back in 1980 was more than fulfilled. And uh, also was important, uh, was important, not only in China, elsewhere in the world, people misunderstood why population explosion occurred. It was not because people had more birth. It's because more birth survived. So after the uh, after period of uh, for the mortality decline, people would adjust their behavior, and so that's why we see birth rate is so low and it's getting lower in more and more countries today. So what happened was in the early 1990s, China's birth rate or fertility already dropped to below two children per couple. And it was not clear to what extent this was due to the policy. The one-child policy was only in place for less than a decade and a half. Uh, and what was due to China's spectacular economic boom, migration, urbanization, education. Also, also if I may please, uh, more educated women are reluctant to have children earlier in life. Is that a, is that a fair assessment? Uh, somewhat. In somewhat. Oh, okay. It's not similar to the United States and Western Europe. Then, uh, that the aspect. higher education expansion did not occur until the end of that decade. I see. So anyway, so by 2000, uh, that's 20 years after the one-child policy, and China already had a different demographic profile and different economy. Uh, so um, the, the natural thing is to start think about this costly policy to Chinese families, right? And uh, not everyone was subject to the policy. Uh, some rural families could have two children, mm -hmm. but the majority of Chinese couples, over 60% were subject to the one-child policy. Did China's leaders also adhere to this to this policy? For example, does President Xi only have one child? Uh, yes. So that's uh, that's the other side of uh, this policy. There's very little corruption. People really bought. That's into amazing! Wow, because that's I, I wouldn't have thought that. People really bought into this, and so President Xi has only one daughter, and so does the Prime Minister. So we're not talking about a potential for a male male dynasty here. Um, that ironically, uh, it's not a possibility. It turns out that the top leaders of China collectively, the seven uh, most powerful men, uh -huh. uh, who are the members of the standing committee of uh, the Politburo, uh, they only have five children, and I think five or girls. So <laughs> in a country uh, that prefers boys, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so uh, you, you, know, you would expect China would start to think about a different policy. But the one child policy continued for another 15 years until 2015. And uh, there are a number of re reasons to this. Uh, one is that the public, Chinese public, really bought into this, believing wow. that uh, they need to make the sacrifice. And uh, everyone from the very top, the leader, um, obeyed the policy. And uh, so that's one aspect. And the other aspect is this uh, bureaucracy, this birth control bureaucracy that got expanded and uh, really got itself into a powerful position and arguing in particular that birth rate dropped in China precisely because of the one-child policy. 
So they were playing up the role of this policy, saying that if China, here, here's what you have. Uh, in the early 2010s, just two years before the policy was lifted, the government branch, their scholars came out with uh, a warning that the, if one child policy were lifted, the annual birth could go up to uh, 23 million. Okay. So, what happened? Well, last year, the meaning the number of birth was less than 15 million. Wow. Seven so million less than that. They clearly played up. Uh, well, this will scare the leaders that, uh, the, believing that the policy mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. the key in keeping the birth rate low. And you couldn't have a, uh, a alternative unless you lift this. And that's what happened in 2015. Professor Wang, why don't we take a short break and we'll be right back. Thank you. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Professor Wang, earlier you you shared with me that nothing like this to, to, to this extent had ever been done for this duration. In a previous conversation, you and I talked about India, which had this short-lived, uh, really brutal policy of sterilization. Would you like to just talk about that a little bit? Of course. Um, China was not the only country uh, that was so scared. Uh, with the runaway population growth in the second half, the last quarter of the 20th century. Uh, so China was the largest country. And then you turn around, the second largest was India. And, uh, India was also. And, and, and India was fast close, closing that gap, right? They were, they were the growth was uh, almost astronomical at that time. Am I correct? Uh, was growing very fast, uh, due to the same reason. Uh, Mortality was dropping and, um, population was getting healthier, uh, but not as fast as China. Not as fast as China. Okay. In 1983 or 82, early 1980s, uh, also stepped on, uh, the brakes. So, uh, they had a massive sterilization campaign. How massive when you say massive? Um, well, we're talking about uh, tens of millions of uh, sterilizations were carried out uh, in a single year. And um, good God! And uh, so, what happened was that here's the difference between India and China. Mm-hmm. India, for better and worse, uh, is known as the largest democracy uh, in the world. So it it does, and they did have elections. So the uh, uh, the governing party uh, under the prime minister uh, Indira Gandhi, who was Gandhi's uh, well as the daughter of the first prime minister of uh, the new India, mm-hmm. she was a very effective leader, very powerful, and she was overthrown. Because of that policy. Because uh, of that. So wow. they lost the election. So that's how severe it was. Not the same in China. Uh, because China was not a democracy. And China, and also the Chinese people just bought into this. Interesting. And uh, in 1983, that China also had a sterilization campaign. Just a couple of years after the one child policy, they really want to uh, clean the field. Uh, two out of every five pregnancies were aborted. In China? China. Oh, boy. So a year... What, was there also a sterilization of women in China? 
are tremendous. So tremendous. Wow. in 1983, there were 20 million uh, babies born, uh, 14 million aborted, fetuses aborted. 14. Oh my God. And sterilization, 17 million. So, uh, so abortion is not a lightning rod political issue as it is here in, in the Western world and the Christian. Right. It's right? not, it's not the same. It's not have the same, uh, kind of, uh, moral, uh, debate. Yeah. So, uh, but so, but in China, um, the government was not affected. Um, and, um, there were backlashes. And that's why 84 to 86, 1986, uh, the government started to give in uh, to the people in the countryside and uh, allowed a policy that's more uh, lenient for people so, who in the countryside. But it continued with the state employees and, and urban populations, right? right. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, they had no place to escape. Exactly. Professor Wang, I want to close off our conversation about the historical aspect of the one-child policy with the children. Um, I thought about this over the weekend when I was at my parents' house with my siblings and our children, so three generations, and it, 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 it sort of occurred to me, yes, these one ch children of one-child policy, by definition, don't have siblings. But they probably didn't have aunts or uncles or cousins either. Is that correct? Absolutely. So this is the one of the uh, the most I think long lasting uh, consequences uh, of the one child policy. The policy lasted for thirty years. We ended, um, but it created uh, something like a hundred million uh, families. It's one in three in China uh, with only one child, right? And uh, we don't actually know what's the full uh, consequences of this forcefully uh, alteration of the king network of family structure and of the effect on uh, children and on their parents as well. So it's almost like an upside down pyramid, uh, four grandparents and two parents and then one child. You see what I mean? Like the support system is almost turned upside down where we used to be much wider. The base used to be down with many, many children. Is that a fair assessment, sir? Uh, that's exactly what's happening. And uh, so you have uh, two children with four parents and you know, two only children with four parents. And, uh, and that has tremendous, uh, implications. Here we're looking at, uh, two sources of, uh, old age support. You know, when we look, uh, ahead. So, uh, you rely on the society to the government to provide, uh, old age support because, um, you only have one child. So you can't count on only child to provide all the support. But uh, the very same family structure you just described, four to one, uh, is going to be aggregated to the whole society. So you're going to have a top-heavy uh, population age structure with more and more elderly and with uh, a smaller bottom with a younger population with smaller and smaller share. And uh, what's also important, we don't quite understand this yet, is why birth rate in China is so low. Continues it, to be so low after the abandonment of the policy, right? Exactly. What, yeah. Okay. So how much of that was because the only children themselves feeling that they need to support uh, their parents in the future, they don't want to take up more jobs to have more children to support as well. Well, how much of that is a normalization of a norm which is abnormal? That is, if you ask people in, 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 in almost every society, what's the ideal number of children? How many would you like to have? Overall, it's two children, one boy, one girl. I think that's kind of the ideal uh, 
family uh, children sides. Uh, so by having a one-child policy for 35 years, you look around and I'm only child, everyone else is only child, we seem to be fine. So it's surely normal. It's the, it's the it's norm. Not, right. So uh, something that was abnormal in the, uh, the societal, cultural setting, which is uh, you're the only child, now it's quite prevalent. So to what extent that's also contributing to the very low fertility uh, in China, we don't know. Uh, so you do have these uh, ripple uh, effects, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the outcomes of this um, unparalleled policy of birth control in human history. I see. Uh, Professor Wang, please stay with me as we get into the perspective of this episode. Okay. Professor Wang, can you please give me some perspective on what happens now to the livelihood of China's elderly? Who's going to pay for all these grandparents? Are we talking about Social Security? Are we talking about uh, private pensions, government pensions? There's only one kid. Do we have a, I guess, I guess if I may phrase it this way, I hope I'm not being hyperbolic here. Do we have a looming pension crisis in China? Uh, it's it's coming. It's coming. It's, coming. Uh, it's going to be worse than the ones in in Western Europe and North America. Uh, it's much worse than the one uh, in North America. Uh, it's um, it could be worse than uh, the ones in uh, Western Europe as well. It's because um, China for China to become a what's called an aging society, that is to have uh, 15 to 25% of its population uh, aged 65 and over. Uh, for China to travel to that benchmark, um, it took less than 30 years. And uh, for Western European societies, they are also aged now, but it took 100 years or 70 years. So the aging process is very compressed. And you have, uh, what do we discussed, uh, of so many families with only one child. So you have both an aggregate pressure, that is the ratio between um, the elderly population uh, who need to have some kind of pension support and the population you can take taxes from, the working population. So you have that ratio uh, it's getting uh, uh, higher and higher, the more, uh, yeah. So, and then at the same time, you're looking at, at each individual family. Uh, it's not just money. You also have to have time to spend uh, with your aging parents. You need, your aging parents need somebody to get them to the hospitals. To Precisely, which, which really segues into what I'm, what the, the sort of the, this other looming uh, issue that I see healthcare for the elderly. They need at home nursing. They need nursing homes. They need people to literally physically, the physicality of it, wheel them to, <laughs> to the nursing. Who does this? These are young people are supposed to do this. Well, China has gotten a lot of leisure. So, Sorry, got, get a lot more wealthier now. China okay. is the upper middle so uh, income society with a lot of inequality. Um, but money cannot buy everything. Exactly. And uh, you need people to, uh, at certain stage of people's lives, uh, you need to have people to help you to make the decisions, to pay the bills. There is a point where you just cannot pay your own, own bill. So uh, these uh, instrumental support uh, will put a lot of pressure on the only children. And also, uh, you know, parents are parents. They're human beings and they raise their children for a emotional reason. So, um, you need to have the time, uh, to, uh, to talk with your children 
and to have your children come to visit you. So all those. So are you talking uh, about lower quality of association between in between families and generations? I mean, that's what makes human life human life. Exactly. So all these generational boundaries, or these are invisible sacrifices. You know, for instance, uh, I'm, I won't be surprised to hear that more and more elderly just die alone in their apartments without anybody noticing them. The fastest growing family household type in China now is single is uh, one person single or single generation, just elderly, one couple households. That's going up really, really fast. And some of this is because young people are not getting married. So just like in the United States, but others are just elderly living by themselves. That's that's both frightening and sad. So people are making adjustments and make adapt. Well, human beings, we can always adapt, but it's it's not a enviable and uh uh, a pleasant life that is very much dictated in Chinese culture. Uh, when you say you uh, parents invest in their children and to give everything to their children, and they also say children should uh, support their parents. And uh, there was a reason for that to be in the Chinese culture. It's a yeah. very valuable aspect of any culture, but that uh, it's going to be very difficult uh, to fulfill right now. And for the state, um, the bill for pension and for healthcare uh, will run up very quickly. And that's going to compromise, constrain China's global economic and military ambitions. You think that'll... I feel like you're about to go into how this may impact U.S.-China relations, or is, is this is this much hype? Is this just exaggeration? Uh, from what you're saying, I feel like you're making a real case about how aging population may impact this relationship. Uh, yes and no. Uh, no, in the sense that demography is a slow-moving process, so we're not going to see this like say next year or the year mm -hmm. after next. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yes. fifteen. 20 years down the road, the United States and China uh, will be two very different societies demographically. The United States would more or less uh, maintain its current population age structure, while China would be much, much older. And so that has a whole uh, slew of consequences. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, we certainly do not want to go into military confrontation, but if that's something on the table, uh, it's very hard to conscribe people into the army when you have a very aging society, very few young people. Or, or, or when you are an only son or only daughter and you're caring for your parents and even um, grandparents, you know. And uh, that used to be an exemption in the Western Europe and America if you were the only child. I think it was. Um, so that's a big deal. For a good reason. For yeah. Good reason. That one child, uh, something happens to the one child, the parents would be left uh, heirless and nobody would be looking after them. And uh, I think in general, a older China is going to be a kinder and more peaceful China. And uh, the. That would be great. The preoccupation, I think that's why I think there's so much hype about uh, a military confrontation, about uh, you know, a global instability. Uh, we have to understand both China and the United States are large countries that the majority of the problems they have to deal with are domestic. Yeah. They have to deal with domestic. Yes. So uh, the United States has a history of being an international policeman. It you know, goes into peacekeeper or whatever. Uh, uh, but China does not have that uh, tradition. And the domestic challenges associated with uh, rapid population aging, large share of families uh, are so weak, uh, will constrain China a lot more. Um, than is the case for the United States. So um, 
Interesting. I, this I, is a conversation that most Americans are not privy to. They don't look at it this way because it's not probably as exciting as talk about quote unquote the threat of China, right? Uh, spending right. more. I mean, that's not what we uh, see in the news media. Exactly. Look at China uh, in 30 years. Uh, one out of every three uh, persons would be age 65 and over. And how would one it, out of three? Wow. So how would it uh, you know, want to uh, launch a war uh, with the United States? One, one thing that I noticed, uh, and, and this is just a comment. I don't really have a question, but it's interesting reading, reading your publications and and uh, following uh, China's uh, population growth, one thing that I noticed that the U.S. has that is entirely missing in China's recent history anyway, it's immigration. I immigration adds, contributes. And I don't want to get to this political aspect. I'm just talking about demographics. It's really a driver of, uh, of our population versus China doesn't have that. That's no, no other country has what we have yeah. in the United States. Uh, yeah. There are a few countries that have a lot of immigrants, immigrant countries. And you look at Canada, you look at Australia. Um, but the United States is su it's supremely unique in this aspect. This it's aspect. an immigrant society. It draws people, just not everybody, it draws positive selection talents from all over the world. And we know uh, this society has the dynamism that uh, other uh, countries with long traditions do not have. It's one of our strengths. It's absolutely one of our strengths and also uh, demographic. They keep this country young, uh, relatively speaking. Yeah. After hearing what you had to say, you definitely want to keep the country young. And, uh, and also... Um, Immigration would continue in this country, uh, but immigration is very, very hard for a homogeneous uh, Chinese society. So we have a lot of issues with racial relations, yeah. and uh, we are making transformations. The society is changing, but China uh, is always a Han population, majority-dominated uh country and that's been the case for centuries if not longer exactly the han majority since and uh so uh that is not something china can uh learn can adapt it's just not possible uh china has not even began to uh learn how to deal with uh race and ethnicity and we hear a lot of uh, complaints these days it, immigration bringing in immigrants assimilating them into our society is something that america is uniquely positioned uh, for uh, mm -hmm. professor wang thank you so much for educating me and our listeners you're welcome to our show to the peel dot news anytime and to our listeners if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take 
on history? Well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.